You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. I'm Katie Geary. In our first season, we introduced you to the people and stories behind some of Beckett's most influential religious liberty cases. If you haven't already listened, you should check them out. For our second season, we're dissecting religious liberty and its far-reaching implications. We'll do it through the lens of its two major pieces in the U.S. Constitution, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. And we'll highlight some of the concrete connections between religious liberty and other liberties, like speech. When we launch our second season, you'll meet our new co-host. But today's episode is our introduction to the season. So I've invited Monse Alvarado, Beckett's Vice President and Executive Director, to join me. Thanks, Katie. In what we like to call our teaser episode, we'll be learning about an extraordinarily important bipartisan legislative protection for religious liberty, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, also called RIFRA. This is our love letter to RIFRA, a timely reminder of how people of diverse backgrounds and beliefs can unite behind a common cause. Religious freedom is a basic and fundamental right. The freedom to seek truth and live our convictions is at the heart of who we are as human beings. But religious freedom controversies are also deceptively complex. That's why Beckett exists. Our sole mission is the defense of religious liberty for all Americans, from A to Z, as we like to say, Anglicans to Zoroastrians. We work round the clock on religious liberty cases, but luckily, we aren't the only ones who care. We're never going to give up religious freedom. And I would fight to the death to make sure we don't. And I think that a lot of others would as well. That's former Senator Orrin Hatch. Besides being the longest-serving Republican senator in U.S. history, Senator Hatch has long been a defender of religious freedom. Two key pieces of legislation, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, owe their enactment in large part to him. We all have a shared desire here to protect perhaps the most precious of all American liberties, religious freedom. On November 16, 1993, President Clinton signed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act into law. The act, commonly called RIFRA, was the culmination of three years of bipartisan work to remedy what was widely seen as a major Supreme Court mishap. During the 1960s through the 1980s, most religious liberty cases relying on the First Amendment's free exercise clause had been decided with a certain judicial test, I'm going to mess this up, called the strict scrutiny test. Strict scrutiny test, say that five times fast. Strict scrutiny test, strict scrutiny test. Okay, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) The strict scrutiny test meant that cases involving religious liberty, one of our most fundamental rights being found in the First Amendment, had to be decided based on the strictest standards. If the government had passed a law that impinged on someone or some group's religious freedom, it had to prove that it was doing so to achieve a compelling government interest and that there was no less restrictive way for the government to achieve that goal. The strict test put the burden of proof on the government. The government can't force someone to violate her religion unless it has a really strong reason. Most of the time, the government is supposed to leave people to live out their faith in peace. But in 1990, the Supreme Court came down with a decision that would prove to be pivotal. The case was called Employment Division versus Smith. At the heart of the case was a dispute over whether two Native American men could claim unemployment benefits from the state of Oregon. 
The men had been fired from their jobs because they had ingested peyote off the job during a religious sacrament. Peyote was listed on the National Register of Narcotics, and use of any drugs on that list qualified as workplace misconduct. There were no religious exceptions written into the law. So Oregon denied the men unemployment benefits. But the men objected. The law was written to target people who were abusing narcotics. But their peyote use wasn't recreational. It was religious. In fact, ironically, these men were actually working at a drug and alcohol addiction rehabilitation center. Al Smith, the Smith in the name of the case, had himself suffered from alcoholism. And religious use of peyote is actually linked to addiction recovery in Native American patients. The Oregon Supreme Court ruled in favor of the men, but the state appealed. That's when the case found its way to the United States Supreme Court. The late Justice Antonin Scalia read the court's opinion. Its procedural background is complex. Suffice it to say that the issue currently before us is whether Oregon's criminal law against the use of certain mind-altering drugs, including peyote, can constitutionally be applied to the respondent's sacramental use of peyote in ceremonies of the Native American church. The Oregon Supreme Court held that because of the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, it could not. We reverse that judgment. The Supreme Court ruled against the Native American men. The court did not use the strict scrutiny test. The ruling, written by Justice Antonin Scalia, said that the law prohibiting illegal drug use, peyote here, was, quote, neutral and generally applicable. In other words, the law hadn't been written to target religious use of these drugs. And because the infringement of these men's free religious exercise was an indirect or incidental effect of enforcing the law, Oregon had not violated the First Amendment. The court basically said, if we apply the strict scrutiny test across the board to these cases, it puts the court in an activist or legislating role that it's not supposed to fill. Of course, it's not the court's job to legislate. But on the other hand, it is the court's job, first and foremost, to defend the freedoms written into the Constitution. And so the widespread reaction was, this was a clear violation of the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights, and the court had let it happen. In the years after Smith, the Oregon legislature did create an exemption for religious peyote use. So did Congress. By passing the American Religious Freedom Act amendments, which specifically protected religiously motivated peyote use by Native Americans. Those amendments were passed in 1994. But, Katie, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Right. Back to Smith. The end result of the Smith ruling was that the government penalized these two Native American men's religious use of peyote. This concerned a lot of members of Congress. We spoke to former Senator Joe Lieberman, who, along with Senator Hatch, was instrumental in passing RIFRA. We were worried that, um, that, that there might be a compromise of uh, religious freedom as a result, which was not intended by the Supreme Court. In other words, we felt that we had to restate in law what uh, we believed um, fundamentally what was uh, a priority for the people who wrote the Constitution, which was the primacy of religious freedom. Senator Lieberman made it clear he didn't think the Supreme Court had intended to dilute religious liberty. You might say that RIFRA was a, uh, a clarification uh, and a sort of restatement 
of the um, fundamental right of religious freedom uh, in American life that goes back to the founding. As Senator Orrin Hatch put it, You have a right to worship the way you want to and the way you please. That's what's making America such a great country. And uh, without it, I don't think we'd be nearly as great a country as we are. What made this congressional effort remarkable was how widely supported it was. Americans of many faiths and many political beliefs wanted RIFRA to pass because everyone agreed that the right to religious freedom is crucial. And our legislators were just as united. Clerk will report the title of the bill. May 11, 1993, the House debate on RIFRA. Here's Representative Hamilton Fish Jr., New York Republican. The ability of men and women of faith to freely practice their religion is guaranteed by the First Amendment was seriously threatened about the 1990 decision of the United States Supreme Court in Employment Services Division versus Smith. Representative Robert Goodlatte, Virginia Republican. Clearly this situation must be reversed. That's why I urge support of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which would restore higher constitutional protection for our religious liberty. Representative Steny Hoyer, Maryland, Democrat. To restore freedom is always timely. To restore, in particular, the rights that Americans hold so sacred under the First Amendment, uh, and in particular, the right to practice their religion as they see fit. Representative Bruce Vento, Minnesota Democrat. I think this is a, an opportunity, obviously, to reaffirm our uh, our support for the Constitution, the religious freedom uh, that uh, is inherent in the uh, the Bill of Rights and the uh, the practices uh, and laws of our country for the past 200 years. There was a uh, a great coming together uh, on behalf of RIFRA of uh, religious organizations across faith lines and denominational lines, because everyone uh, had an interest in clarifying that the Supreme Court did not, in the Smith decision, intend to compromise the uh, priority place of religion in American life and of religious freedom, where it wasn't only bipartisan and sponsorship, which often happens, but there were a lot of votes on both sides to make this law uh, this happens sometimes, even still in our highly polarized age. But then, in a time that was less polarized, nonetheless, um, this was an unusual coalition because because people of all religions and most of them are represented in some way in Washington um, have offices or organizations, associations, lobbyists, public interest lobbyists. Most of them felt somewhat threatened by by the Supreme Court decision in Smith. And um, it came together uh, and, and really with, as a uh, kind of massive uh, and very impressive lobbying force to speak to just about every member of Congress of, of uh, any political affiliation. I mean, I'm at the... the I will tell you that the feelings I have looking back at the legislative life of RIFRA um, are very warm. It's a funny thing to say about legislation, particularly now when there's such a, a constant attack, counterattack uh, climate in Washington. But really, people came together uh, across uh, religious and political lines 
uh, to do something that every, everybody thought was quintessentially American. And, and in doing so, uh, they, they, we all acted <laughs> quintessentially American, uh, which is a, a, to uphold our values and, and, uh, and their unifying values. The two companion bills for the Religious Freedom Restoration Act were introduced in the House and the Senate, respectively, by Democratic Congressman Chuck Schumer and Democratic Senator Ted Kennedy. They passed unanimously in the House and nearly unanimously in the Senate. And President Clinton signed RIFRA into law. It is interesting to note, as the vice president said, what a broad coalition of Americans came together to make this bill a reality. Interesting to note that that coalition produced a 97 to 3 vote in the United States Senate and a bill that had such broad support it was adopted on a voice vote in the House. I'm told that as many of the people in the coalition worked together across ideological and religious lines, some new friendships were formed and some new trust was established, which shows, I suppose, that power of the God is such that even in the legislative process, miracles can happen. In substance, what RIFRA did was restore that strict judicial test from before. If the federal government has burdened someone's religious exercise, it's going to have to prove that it's furthering a compelling government interest that can't be achieved in some less restrictive way. And since then, with both the federal law and similar laws that have passed in many states, RIFRA has made good on its promise, protecting people of many faiths, Native Americans, Muslims, Sikhs, and Unitarians, to name some examples. But interestingly, despite its broad support at its passing, RIFRA has generated controversy in the last several years. If you listened to episodes in our first season, you might remember the big case where Beckett represented Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby is a family-owned craft store chain and has a reputation as a fantastic social citizen. Right. They pay their lowest salaried worker more than double the minimum wage. They have a great employee health plan. Hobby Lobby went to court against the federal government because the Christian owners objected to a federal mandate that would require them to include drugs that violated their religious beliefs in their employees' health insurance plans. Hobby Lobby objected to only four out of 20 FDA-approved contraceptives. But although the Department of Health and Human Services didn't require employers to cover every drug for serious illnesses such as Parkinson's or MS, they insisted that employers had to provide every form of contraceptive, including those few that Hobby Lobby considered to be abortifacient. The government told them to abide by the mandate or drop their health insurance plan and just pay an enormous fine. But Hobby Lobby had employees on their payroll who were pregnant or had cancer and couldn't afford to be dropped from health insurance. The government had somehow exempted many other employers, like Exxon and Pepsi, for other reasons, economic reasons. But the federal government would not allow Hobby Lobby an exemption for religious freedom reasons. When Beckett represented Hobby Lobby at the Supreme Court, we used RIFRA to remind the federal government that Religious freedom is important, and they had to treat religious freedom with at least as much seriousness as the other governmental interests, like economic interests, especially if there's another way for them to achieve their policy goals. The Supreme Court ruled in Hobby Lobby's favor. In the words of a Beckett lawyer, the court took RIFRA seriously and, quote, interpreted it vigorously. The ruling strengthened RIFRA's authority 
and went on to protect some of those religious minorities we mentioned before. But the Hobby Lobby outcome wasn't universally applauded. Critics began saying, RIFRA is just a way for religious people to discriminate against those who don't share their beliefs. RIFRA became a hot-button issue, where before it had been really a non-controversial law that everyone could get behind. But fears about RIFRA becoming a way to discriminate were based on a misunderstanding of RIFRA. In every religious exception case since Smith that has used strict scrutiny, people have said that if courts grant religious exceptions, it'll open the floodgates to lawsuits. Here's Beckett President Mark Rienzi on Fox News with Megyn Kelly. They did press your side on, on wh whether this is a slippery slope. So if Hobby Lobby can, says no, can say no to those four drugs through its insurance company to the women, then, then who's next? Can some employer come out and say, well, I have an objection to medical vaccinations, so I'm not going to pay for those. And somebody else comes out and says, well, I have an objection to blood transfusion, so I'm not going to allow those. And it could, it, can we run a law this way, piecemeal, with employers coming out and saying, well, I have this one and I have that one? Well, it's not, it's not a slippery slope, and it's not going to be a slippery slope. Um, for all of American history, until 2012, any employer who objected to covering vaccines could have objected, and anyone who didn't want to cover blood transfusions could have objected. You never heard of any cases like that. I never heard of any cases like that, because that's not actually a real religious objection that anyone has. But if somebody ever does, this law has a balancing test. That balancing test is the standard in RIFRA. Does the government have a truly compelling interest here, and is it using the least restrictive means to achieve it? The courts have not been flooded with religious liberty cases. On the contrary, it turns out that religious liberty litigation comprises only 0.6% of the federal docket. Half of those cases are brought by prisoners or asylum seekers. The courts have had no problem weeding out insincere claims. Actually, in most of these cases, the religious plaintiffs don't win. And it turns out all the terrible cases people feared would happen after Hobby Lobby never happened. So no, there's been no parade of horribles, no slippery slope because of RIFRA. What there has been is a promise that Americans can retain and pursue their deepest convictions, and the government can still accomplish its most compelling purposes. RIFRA has played a big role in Beckett cases. Because of RIFRA, Sikhs are allowed to serve in the U.S. Army without abandoning their religious turbans. Because of RIFRA and its sister bill, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, Muslim prisoners are allowed to grow beards for religious reasons. Because of RIFRA, an Army veteran in Florida is allowed to feed the homeless. And because of RIFRA, members of Texas's Lipan Apache tribe are allowed to keep their sacred eagle feathers. At RIFRA's passing, President Clinton said something very powerful. But let us never believe that the freedom of religion imposes on any of us some responsibility to run from our convictions. Let us instead respect one another's fates, fight to the death to preserve the right of every American to practice whatever convictions he or she has, but bring our values back to the table of American discourse to heal our troubled land. Our country today feels very divided in many ways. It's hard to imagine a feeling of united purpose, like the one that spurred RIFRA in 1993. It's, um, uh, it almost seems a bit nostalgic, like it was another uh, century as opposed to just 30 years ago. It was a long time ago, 30 years. 
but the mood um, is was so much different. So uh, that's, it's not that there wasn't partisan politics. There was. Uh, we couldn't pass that today. I mean, that's how that's how the Senate has devolved uh, over time. But we passed it back then with only three dissenting votes. Why that was possible seems really simple when you understand RIFRA. RIFRA allows governments to carve out important religious liberty exemptions for minority groups while still passing policies favored by the majority. Without RIFRA, the government would be forced to choose over and over again between protecting religious liberty for minorities and passing popular policies. Think about it. If RIFRA had been around before the infamous Employment Division versus Smith case, Al Smith would never have lost his job for worshiping the way his religion called him to outside of work. And the state of Oregon would still have been able to enforce the illegal drug use law where it mattered. Today, critics of RIFRA often point to a perceived conflict between religious liberty claims and gay rights. For this reason, some have even called for eliminating the federal law as well as the similar state RIFRA laws around the country. But in a recent Friend of the Court brief filed for an upcoming case, Professor Douglas Laycock of University of Virginia School of Law lays out a really good argument for why the strict scrutiny standard is actually helpful in conflicts like this one. He writes, quote, It may be frustrating for those on either side in a social conflict to see governments or other citizens legally doing things that they deeply disapprove of. But it is far worse to be told that your own religious or intimate personal practices must conform to the other side's preferences, end quote. In fact, he writes, quote, Without exemptions, a threat to religious liberty from proposed legislation can be countered only by blocking the legislation entirely. If the choice is between a gay rights law with no exemptions or no gay rights law at all, then in many places, there will be no gay rights law at all. So RIFRA, by reinforcing the strict scrutiny standard, is a tool that gets us away from a you-lose-I-win mentality. In practice, it decreases conflict because it leads us away from an all-or-nothing approach. We wondered, in today's divided America, is there hope that people can come together to recognize religious freedom as a common cause? We talked to Caleb Lyman, Beckett's Director of Research and Analytics. I definitely think that the data shows that religious freedom is something that can unite us more than divide us. In late 2019, Caleb led Beckett's launch of the Religious Freedom Index, a comprehensive poll on American support for religious liberty. So the Religious Liberty Index is an opinion index where we're trying to get a feel for what Americans uh, think and what their opinions are on the, the full scope of religious liberty issues. So there are a lot of polls out there that focus on just really the hot button religious liberty issues of the day, the current cases that are at Supreme Court, etc. And there really isn't anything that allows you to take like a, a step back and look at the kind of 30,000 foot view of American opinion and perspective on religious freedom over time. Another distinction with the index is that it isn't just a one-time poll. The idea is to gather data, answers to the same set of questions every year for as long as we can so that we can gain better insight into trends in religious liberty support. The index, in a way, was designed to get at this question of whether Americans are unified on religious liberty or whether it is something that is totally divisive. If it were that religious freedom is 
a completely divisive issue, we'd expect to see kind of 50-50 splits along all of these questions. And that simply was not what we saw at all. We saw findings from and results from our respondents that really run contrary to the idea that Americans are not supportive of each other or, or not supportive of, of faiths and religious practices that are different than their own, but really that people are willing to make space for religious practice and religious belief that is different and that is unfamiliar in a way that is encouraging to see that uh, there's support for people that are different in a religious setting and that that freedom to be able to practice religious beliefs other than our own is central still to what it means to be an American. I was super surprised in the results on support for a culture of accommodation where you have those three questions. The first that just asks about whether you support the freedom to hold a variety of religious beliefs and mentions some of those beliefs where we saw 81% support. And then the next like level of involvement or accommodation that asked about whether you support religious practice of minority faiths in the workplace, it's still 74%. And then again, even when that religious practice imposes on others or creates an inconvenience for others, we saw 63% of respondents supporting. I thought that was really surprising that you still, you know, we pushed it kind of as far as, as it would go and that in and that it's causing an inconvenience or imposing on others' lives, and still almost a, a supermajority of respondents are supportive of, of other people being able to do that. What was notable about the support Caleb explained was that for and against responses weren't really divided among what we might think of as the usual demographic categories. Okay, here's one thing that's interesting that I think kind of demonstrates what I was talking about before about, like, you can't pin religious freedom into a box of, oh, religious freedom is something that this political party supports and this other party doesn't, or the young people get it and the old people don't, something like that. With the religious pluralism category, those five questions that ask about um, the ability to hold a variety of different beliefs and practice them in daily life, uh, they all received above 80% of support from uh, the population in general. But even when you break that down into differing views between Democrats and Republicans, the, the biggest spread is like maybe 10%. So that's not a big difference in any way. They're, Democrats and Republicans are very united um, in these areas. And we saw that in, in most of the dimensions. It wasn't just something in religious pluralism. I think it's true that a lot of the, the narratives that we hear are narratives of division around religious liberty and of it being something that is a source of conflict. But the support that we see for so many different beliefs and so many religious practices and the ability to um, have those freedoms um, from the, the respondents' answers here, I think shows that although in specific instances you can definitely pull out conflicts that we see, in, in kind of day-to-day -day American life, at the core, Americans are still very supportive of religious freedom, and they want that to extend to a, a wide range of people and a wide range of contexts. Uh, the data really shows that um, I think our expectations about who feels one way or another about religious freedom don't really match up with reality, that it crosses uh, demographics, geographies, etc., and is, um, is something that can unite people, that uh, people have 
varying opinions on, but um, not in the ways that you would expect. So there's hope. There's always hope. The more true understanding there is about religious liberty, the specific protections of great laws like RIFRA, and the principles behind them, the more I think all Americans will come together to support our fundamental freedom. So we're lucky. We're really lucky to live in a country that has so much freedom, including religious freedom, uh, even though it doesn't impose any religion on anybody in our country. Uh, but it sure opens the door for people who want to believe, do believe, and who want to uh, promulgate their beliefs in a reasonable way. I always like to say that the, the grants of liberty that we find in our Declaration of Independence and uh, in the Constitution were actually not um, realized at the time those two great documents were adopted. I mean, when you think about it, uh, people of color had no rights, women had no rights. There was, were different in the states, various forms of religious discrimination. And our history, uh, remarkably and impressively, is generation after generation to realize in law the values and aspirations that the framers of the Constitution, signers of the Declaration, embraced. And, uh, you know, in a small but I think meaningful way, I was privileged in being part of sponsoring uh, the RIFRA legislation to continue that um, march forward in, in realizing these great fundamental American values. This one, um, one of the most important to me, probably the most important because it's at the base of everything else, which is religious freedom. Thank you to Senator Orrin Hatch, Senator Joe Lieberman, and Beckett's Caleb Lyman for granting us interviews for this episode. Music in this episode, courtesy of APM Music and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme song was composed by Eric McNerney. Archival audio, courtesy of C-SPAN. Beckett is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious freedom for all. For more information on RIFRA, our work, and Stream of Conscience, Visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on social media.